Welcome to a new season of Classicism in Conversation, brought to you by the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. We begin with a bonus episode of Cities We Live In, and then in upcoming episodes, we'll chat with some students reflecting on their journey in architecture, dive into the science behind our buildings, and much more. Stay tuned for an exciting year of new topics and themes as we study classicism from perspectives we might not ordinarily see. You can also listen to episodes from our inaugural season by visiting classicist.org, your favorite streaming app, or where you're listening right now. Welcome to Cities We Live In. I'm Kellen Krauss, an architect who grew up in the suburbs and is now living the city life. Each time I return home, I think about what lessons can be applied from a traditional walkable city to car-oriented developments. On this show, I'll travel from city to city with two fellow architects and urbanists. Hi, my name is Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro. And I am Anthony Katanyak. We'll meet up with friends who can tell us all about what it's like to live in their city. In this episode, we visit Chicago, Illinois. Why don't we start with how you got to Chicago? I am a Chicagoan from California. (laughs) Uh, My parents both have roots in the Midwest. By the time that we moved to California, when I was six, I was a Cubs fan. And I remained a Cubs fan throughout my time in Southern California. At a time when the Dodgers were really good. That's Philip Bess, an architect, urbanist, and professor at the University of Notre Dame, whose graduates fill the offices of ICAA member firms. He has spearheaded the project AfterBurnham.com which we'll hear more about in a little bit. After college, I went to New England for a graduate degree, actually, in church history, and then went to architecture school at the University of Virginia. I was a classic liberal arts undergrad, three-year architectural degree guy. So after growing up on the West Coast and graduating on the East, you found yourself looking for both a job and a new home. Actually, I would have loved to go back to Boston because I love Boston. After you've lived there for a while, you think you can't live anywhere else. But you can, and, and pretty well. A lot of people feel that way about New York. But there's life all over. When I graduated, I knew that I wanted to go live in a National League city because I wanted to see the Cubs. I wanted to go to work for Bob Venturi in Philadelphia. But he was not hiring at the time. I kind of booked train tickets, and I was going to go to Philadelphia and then to Chicago I realized pulling into the station in Chicago, I want to see the Cubs. And Chicago's not a bad city. So it took me about 10 days, but I found a job in Chicago. And so I moved to Chicago in, in 1981. I lived in Chicago for 25 years, raised my kids. By then, of course, I had some architectural eyes and studied a little bit of urbanism. But I knew what a good neighborhood looked like. We found an apartment in Lincoln Square. And Lincoln Square at the time was just this kind of middle-class ethnic neighborhood. After we'd been there for about 15 years, it spectacularly gentrified and, mm-hmm. and became the hot real estate yeah. that, it, that it is today. So I had these ties to Chicago that were emotional, and they existed prior to having any kind of intellectual conception about urbanism. Anyway, I, I went to work for a modernist. I went to work for Helmut Jahn in mm-hmm. Chicago doing commercial high-rises. He was uh, very hot at the time. He was doing a lot of... <laughs> developer high-rises and done the state of Illinois Center and was getting a lot of press. I like to say that I spent 15 years there over the course of four years. He cared about his buildings and about the professionalism of it and everything. I realized and began to articulate to myself that I wasn't all that interested in the kind of city that 
his buildings and the buildings that I was working on was making. Mm. And so like a lot of people who kind of wound up promoting walkable mixed use urbanism and who became interested in durable construction, whether classical or vernacular, I kind of found my way there over a long period of time and sort of self-taught. I was married when we went there. My wife and I had a three-year-old daughter in 81, and our sons, Peter and Alexander, were born in 83 and 87. And it was a great neighborhood for them to grow up. The best thing that Barbara and I ever did together was raising our kids in Lincoln Square. So, Phil, you touched on it earlier. What was city life in Chicago like in the 80s? compared to today and what kind of transformations happened? Because in a lot of cities, the 80s were a really dark time. Did you see that in your neighborhood and how did things kind of change over time? Well, one of the things about the 80s in Chicago is that it was still a middle class. Daniel Hertz did a little graphic about watch Chicago's middle class disappear before your eyes. Chicago is this division between wealth and poverty, but In the 80s and the 90s, it was this middle-class people. I think part of it was the middle-class decamped from Chicago and headed out to the suburbs. Anyway, what was was it like living there? I could walk to everything except work, our parish church, my kids' school, the public library, the movie theater, grocery store, all that stuff was within walking distance. The public park, it was a typical Chicago neighborhood in that respect. I mean, that's what Chicago was. I realized that the way that most people thought about cities was not the way historically cities in the Western world had been thought of, right? Really, in this Aristotelian tradition, cities were places of human flourishing, and I felt like the neighborhood that I lived in and the city that I lived in made that possible. Now, that's true for middle class. I mean, you know, Chicago has these great structural inequities in it. It's interesting, you know, the racism in Chicago is structural, right? There's just no denying it. I mean, it has to do with redlining. There's always de facto segregation. But one of the really interesting things about particularly the African-American communities in Chicago on the west side, and especially on the south side, is that there was a black middle class and there was a black professional class and there was this really vibrant black culture and they were, there was a kind of forced segregation, right? But there was a great mix of uses and mix of classes and vibrancy and a real sense of community, a great culture. But it's very much part of the dynamic of Chicago. One of the interesting things is, is that even under conditions of adversity, walkable streets and blocks and a mix of uses allow people to flourish. So this whole Aristotelian thing about cities as being places of human flourishing, they're imperfect, always imperfect, because human beings are imperfect. But that always made a lot of sense to me, just from my own experience. I went on my own, in some ways for my sanity, starting in 1986. In the winter of 1986 was the first time I taught at Notre Dame. I made a living through a combination of adjunct teaching, writing, and small projects, and a grant to do a project about baseball parks, which was my first book, which is a little small booklet. It was a counter-proposal for Comiskey Park in Chicago, the new Mm -hmm. Comiskey Park in Chicago. The book's called City Baseball Magic. So I was doing that until about 1990. So among the other things that I had done when I was on my own, I would also drive a cab part-time. And I started driving a cab almost full-time for about two years. I drove at night and I drove in the suburbs. That's how I got to know metropolitan Chicago. (laughs) I knew the city of Chicago. I drove for a North Shore suburban cab company, but sort of the most interesting thing that I did on that 
was that you know, late at night, like at two in the morning, things slow down after the airport runs. And so the rides aren't easy to come by. But one of the good routes was that the cab company had a contract with the local blood bank. So you'd get a call, you'd go to the blood bank. The blood bank was in Glenview, Illinois, sort of west suburb. And it could take you anywhere in metropolitan Chicago. I went way south, way west, way north. And it was just really interesting. And also it was a time when the suburbs were mushrooming out there. So I just saw all of this development happening. And I realized that all these sorts of theoretical discussions that I was engaged in about urbanism and defenses of urbanism, which I thought then and think now are valid intellectual defenses of of traditional walkable mixed-use neighborhoods, all that stuff that I believed in, it was evident to me that the culture was going so far in the other direction which I understood intellectually before, but viscerally to see it was was an education. So that's how I was kind of introduced to metropolitan Chicago. Then I came to Notre Dame. What does classical humanist architecture and urbanism have to do, what does it have to say about the condition of the modern metropolis, right, the big city? Do we have anything to say about that other than, oh, make walkable mixed-use neighborhoods? Which is plenty, right? You can't just look at the city of Chicago. You have to look at the metropolitan region. The opportunity dropped in my lap. I wasn't expecting it, so it's uh, providential. But I got a major grant to fund the next year's studio, which focused on metropolitan Chicago. And I would say that if driving a cab was sort of the first expansion of my horizons with respect to the scope and the extent of the regional form and the regional economy, that studio was the next quantum leap. Because in those studios, we studied the metropolitan transportation system. We studied the history of wastewater treatment. The city reversed the Chicago River. I never really understood and appreciated what that meant until we worked on that project. Can you expound on that just for a minute about what you learned? Well, Chicago is where it is because there is a subcontinental divide that runs through the city. And on the east and the north side of that subcontinental divide, the water flows into the Great Lakes and eventually finds its way out into the St. Lawrence Seaway into the the Atlantic Ocean in the northeast. And on the other side of it, it flows down several rivers in Illinois that ultimately go to the Mississippi and wind up in the Gulf of Mexico. There was a clear divide between one side and the other, but the Native Americans understood and the original French settlers learned from them that there was this possibility of an overland portage of about you know five or six miles that could get you from watercraft in Lake Michigan to watercraft down the river that would take you down to you know, New Orleans and, and south. Downtown is built where the Chicago River meets Lake Michigan. There's a north branch of the Chicago River and there's a south branch of the Chicago River. And the north branch actually runs maybe 15 or 20 miles north. And again, remember, Chicago was the fastest growing city in the world Mm -hmm. for 50 years, 1880 to 1930. And it grew in that period by 600,000 people per decade. So we looked at the regional transportation system, and then we looked at it in terms of development patterns. We also looked at the historic development patterns of the city of Chicago, which if you've ever looked at the After Burnham site, one of the first graphics, it shows what the development pattern was in 1936. And actually, there's a diagram that shows sort of how that developed from 1860. But it was, you know, little dots of towns along rail lines that extended out of the center. And that was the pattern of development up until 1945 all that landscape right in between those fingers of development filled in 
was sprawl. When we set out to look at metropolitan Chicago and sort of think about these issues, we didn't go into it with an idea in mind of what it would look like, other than that we knew we wanted to promote traditional walkable mixed-use urbanism. But we wound up recapitulating that pattern because it makes sense to develop along the rail lines and to have the open land in between. And this is something I forgot to say about nature's metropolis and, and William Cronin, is that he never mentions Aristotle, but he makes the point. There's a reciprocal relationship between Chicago and the agricultural hinterlands, right? And Aristotle's description of a polis, right, is his understanding of a polis is that a polis is an agrarian urban entity, that they are mutually dependent, right? Agriculture is place-based, cities are place-based. You don't start having place-based human settlements until you have agriculture. I just started reading Jane Jacobs' Economy of Cities today, and I think she's making the opposite argument. Maybe I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but she's saying that without a city, you cannot have agriculture. That's true. They're mutually dependent. For Aristotle, when he's writing about the polis, he understands the polis is an agrarian urban unit. And what was interesting to me about Cronin and writing about Chicago is that he was saying that there was a reciprocity between Chicago and its hinterlands. It was an agrarian urban unit. And so what kind of clicked for me in terms of thinking about bringing to bear a classical humanist sensibility on metropolitan Chicago is to recognize that metropolitan Chicago, which is not just the city of Chicago, but these 4,000 square miles, we had to stop it at a certain point. The 4,000 square miles are the seven counties, right? Yeah. We didn't even count northwest Indiana, and we didn't count southeast Wisconsin. Right. So, All these dependent places. Yeah, right, exactly. But just looking at the seven counties, we were you know, trying to look at that and think about sort of in terms of policy-wise to see that as an agrarian urban thing. When you look at those land use patterns that have begun to develop, you, you began to understand how that really was true, right? That all of those railroad suburbs were very close to open land whether it was yeah. agricultural land or whether it was forests, natural landscape. So that was the genesis of the project, those two studios, kind of making some connections. The last big thing, of course, was that this idea of trying to bring a classical humanist sensibility to bear on the problems of the modern metropolis, right, the modern temporary exploding city, that is exactly what Daniel Burnham was trying to do. Could you talk a little bit about the Burnham Plan of 1909? He was trying to look at Chicago as the next great city in the world, and he understood it as being part of this large metropolitan area that was largely agrarian. He was looking at the economy, he was looking at the built environment. I mean, the Columbian Exposition of 1893 kicked off the American City Beautiful movement, which was bringing Beaux-Arts classical sensibility to America, and not just in the big cities, but also in the small towns. And how did that influence places outside of Chicago and percolate into the U.S. fabric? Well, the Burnham Plan was published in 1909. Burnham died in 1912. After the Columbian Exposition, Burnham did about a half a dozen big city plans. Some of them were for civic centers. So Cleveland has a Burnham Civic Center. So let's talk more about Chicago's neighborhood structure. Could you describe something about its grid and the types of homes and buildings that populate it? There's the Chicago type, right? There's a townhome, there's the alley system. As you move east to west in pre-1945 American cities, you go from more dense to less dense in terms of lot sizes and the buildings that are on the lots. When you start in Boston, in New York, 
Philadelphia, Baltimore, and D.C. Row houses are ubiquitous. Party wall buildings, zero lot line. Townhouses are normative. And then usually there were apartment houses that developed as part of that. But, you know, they were in the same family of buildings, but they were close to the property lines. They defined public space. As you go west, you start to get some separation between buildings. And you had narrow lots, but the buildings were detached. The Chicago fire took place in 1871 and destroyed about two-thirds of the city. And most of the structures that it destroyed were wooden. And one of the consequences that came out of that was a building code that required buildings to be fireproof, which meant buildings that were masonry buildings. And the standard lot size in Chicago is anywhere from you know 25 to 30 or 33 feet, something like that. The Chicago city grid fits into the continental grid. The Chicago block is an eighth of a mile by sixteenth of a mile, center line to center. Now, what makes it interesting is that there were first natural features, the river, Native American pathways along the river that constituted diagonals that turned into avenues. The river was there. The grid came in. The rail lines were put in that ran, would run parallel to the rivers and create barriers and create avenues next to those that were diagonals and the diagonals eventually cut across the orthogonal grid and so you have these regular occurrences but nevertheless the grid is the overwhelming fact of the structure of the city of chicago in the second half of the 19th century they inserted the boulevard system they inserted big parks these lots that i was describing they might be 25 feet they might be 30 33 feet but the buildings that were built on them were not exclusively, but were generally freestanding. The big sort of working class housing types in Chicago are the Chicago Bungalow, which is a single story house that fits on a 25 by 125 foot lot and is freestanding. Because there was a kind of indigenous local version of the arts and crafts movement, which was called the Prairie School style. So a lot of these bungalows, they were just built by builders, not designed by architects. There are tens of thousands of them in the city today. The other really common type that you get is the two flat, which is two apartment units on a single floor, one on top of the other. And generally speaking, that was a building type that was made for working class people to have rental income that would allow them to have a mortgage to own the house. And then in mid-block conditions, you have the development of the U-Court apartment building, which really is an innovative thing in Chicago. U-Court buildings have, have been around for a long time, but in Chicago, they really developed it to an art form. They're durable buildings. They're attractive proportions. And there were really good architects everywhere, especially in Chicago, in the first half of the 20th century, really up until 1940. The irony is that Chicago is famous for the high-rise in steel and concrete frame construction, and rightly so. That's one of the things that struck me from living in a Chicago neighborhood, just sort of walking around and looking and realizing that, oh, this is what this stuff is. And nobody talked about it. Mm. It really was a vernacular kind of culture. And it was built not by developers who would develop a block at a time, but developers who would take a couple of lots and put stuff on it. So Phil, you mentioned at the very beginning that Chicago was a city in which you found a way to flourish as an architect, as a father, as a husband. Could you perhaps wrap up our conversation with some concluding thoughts on why Mr. Bess's neighborhood was an ideal neighborhood for your human flourishing? Well, 
Ideal is not quite the right word. Good. Good <laughs> is it allowed you to live in a variety of overlapping communities that become associated with a place. I remember one evening at an elementary school dinner for my son, Alexander. It was a sports banquet. It was held in the Guild Hall. You know, there might have been a two or three hundred people there. And it was a completely nondescript building. It did front the main avenue. But it was a terrible modern facade and a gymnasium inside. And of course, they had mass there. They had the family mass there on Sundays. It's really weird. Why do they think the families would rather go to church there, you know, on at 9.30 on a Sunday than, than in the <laughs> really nice sanctuary? So I was sitting at a table with some friends of mine and some friends of Alexander's. I didn't know most of the people in the room. I recognized maybe 30 to 40 percent of them, and I knew maybe 15 to 20 percent of them. Mm -hmm. And I knew them from different places in the neighborhood. There was food and there was beer in this kid's banquet. Maybe for those of you who are cradle Catholics, it was a common thing. It was not a common thing for me, not being a cradle Catholic. <laughs> but it was this little sort of sense of convivium, where you have the sense of these are the way things are supposed to be. A genuine community, but also a certain degree of individual freedom and the differences between people that are living together more or less happily. You know, it's possible to have those moments in suburbs, but you have to drive to them. And to just have it as part of the ordinary everyday fabric of the neighborhood life was nice and corresponded with things that I learned in architecture school, which is about that cities are made out of figural space, right? That there are these really good residential neighborhood streets and commercial streets in Chicago and these mix of uses in this particular neighborhood. And you could live in that world and it would still be a kind of pretty big world just because of the variety of people that you meet in that world. You don't have to go far away to meet interesting people. That's part of the joy of living in a neighborhood in a big city is that there's you know, all kinds of things that you can do. You also realize that it's more than just a kind of matter of consumption. It's a matter of being part of people's lives in a daily kind of way. Unfortunately, we haven't arranged our living environments so that enough people have that kind of opportunity. The best thing we do is raise our kids there because our kids, they can go anywhere in the world and feel at home. We often overlook the importance of the neighborhood outside our doorstep. The streets, buildings, parks, and homes which make up these walkable neighborhoods like Lincoln Square, they set the stage for us to flourish in our daily lives, to grow roots and raise a family, to make a living and build and connect with a community. Neighborhoods are the true backbone of the cities we know and love. And Chicago is full of them, with their townhomes and apartments and bungalows that were all built in the service of good community. It's a city we live in, vibrant and full of life. Cities We Live In is a production of the Institute for Classical Architecture and Art. To learn more, visit classicist.org, where you can find a wide variety of programming, become a member, and learn about our educational initiatives. This episode was produced by Justin Kegley and me, Kellen Krauss, with editing help from Molly Wolforth and Rodrigo Boyat Montenegro. If you'd like to help, write to podcasts at classicist.org. Classicism in Conversation is sponsored by Historical Concepts. Find them on Instagram at Historical Concepts and check out their new book, Visions of Home.